Welcome to the Simple Cyber Podcast, brought to you by Internet 2.0, where our cyber intelligence specialists talk with other domain experts about the steps you can take to keep your organization safe. Thank you very much indeed, Dave, for joining us today. We are going to get straight into the questions. Um, but the first question that I'd like to put to you is, could you please give us, in your view, a little bit of insight to the actual impact of business email compromise for Australian businesses? Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. Um, and I'd love to. So business email compromise is one of the biggest cybersecurity problems, issues in the world today. Um, to run through the numbers quickly so everyone can understand the scale, um, under the notifiable breach uh, reporting scheme that Australia runs, uh, 57% of all cyber attacks and reporting of those breaches um, in the last six months from January to June uh, 2021 was attacking credentials. Business email compromise, or also known as account email compromise, is financially damaging as well because it has access to your emails and it has access to invoices. So every single person in Australia has an email account. A lot of people uh, store passwords, do processing of payments, uh, interact with people who owe them money or are owed money to them through their email. Um, and this is one of the primary methods of communication in the modern world. So the FBI um, assessed that the industry or the total addressable market for business email compromise from a criminal standpoint is $26.2 billion. And the Australian Cybersecurity Centre published a report that $634 million AUD was lost in 29 from Australians alone to these types of online scams. The, bit, the email compromise can come in many ways in terms of phishing, malware, but in general, it's you lose access to your emails or someone else has access to your emails and they can, in many different ways, uh, dupe you into paying them money. Um, whether it be through uh, pretending to be someone else, pretending to be a supplier, or potentially having like admin access to your banking details and then transferring the money just directly from their accounts. So it comes in many different forms, but you know it's a significant portion of cyber hacking to date, and it's a significant financial loss globally. Um, and I think it's one of the, I think it's the most important issue in cybersecurity currently, and. The biggest part about it is it's free. So in order to fix this problem, most of the tools are free. You don't have to engage a cybersecurity company to actually implement these tools. And the biggest one, which um, I'm a huge evangelist for, is two-factor authentication. You wouldn't believe the amount of money that I've seen lost because companies just don't have two-factor authentication, and so they lose access to the email accounts. Okay. We're going to come back to the remedy um, for, for the problem shortly. I, I think you know one of the reasons why we wanted to kick off our Simple Cyber Channel with this particular topic is because, as you say, it is the most uh, damaging issue in the cybersecurity space. And, and consistently, you know, people like myself, for example, are going to be reading in the newspaper. Um, you know all the statistics, all the all the evidence that this is is a growing problem, right? And I think that for us, we're, we're probably sort of sitting here going, yeah, like we, we know it's a problem. We we know that it's a problem, and and it's something that we've got to address. 
But I think before we can really sort of start to look at that remedy, what, what would be really useful to understand from you today, Dave, is how does it actually work? So, for example, you know, you talked about password compromise, I think, a moment ago, and the fact that people can get hacked. Like, talk me through how the average Joe with the, with the corner shop actually falls into this trap. What, what, what actually is the sequence? Put me in the mind of a hacker. If you're looking at a business email compromise from a hacking or a credential loss point of view, the best way to think about it is um, like if you can physically kind of picture in your head your passwords and your email account and how, that, how you interact with that online. Because it's an abstract thing that isn't actually abstract. It's lines of code out in the internet. And if you can physically picture it and where it goes and how it looks like, we can take you through the process. So firstly, your, every email account has a, an, an admin login, whether it's a username or the, the email itself, and then a password assigned to that. So that specific email in itself is the only credential initially that you need in order to access that email and then interact with that email. So those credential loss is one of the biggest things that uh, the hacking organizations around the world, the criminal networks, everyone is actually targeting because this is the, one of the key things. It's the, the key to getting into your email accounts. Now, you know, back in the day, criminals used to rob banks and, you know, hold people up on the street and do all this kind of violent things. These days, they don't actually need to do that. And especially with Corona, the biggest access point of your, of your money is actually through online digital banking and through your emails. And so, this is why it's such a big market and such a big problem in cyberspace. So if you can picture yourself signing in with your email on your browser to your password and email account, when you sign with that email and password onto the, onto the browser, that, that data and that password goes to the email provider and they have that on a server in the cloud or something like that and that password and email interacts with that server. It has to go through the telco network from your computer to their server and then it authenticates because all your emails are actually stored on the cloud now not on your phone or your server or your computer at home so that's the first step those the the transition of information between the email provider and yourself has to be secure so if you have malware or you haven't cleaned your computer or you don't have any cyber security endpoint protection or antivirus or anything on your computer and hackers can put stuff like malware or bad things on your computer then they can you know, harvest those credentials in multiple technical different ways. So that's the first point of um, weakness. The major point of weakness though is people putting their email and usernames into third-party systems that the email server provider doesn't control. So there are two major ways that happens and that's through phishing and through just the loss of third-party supply chain attacks. And I'll go through this in an example. So phishing is a perfect one that everyone talks about in cybersecurity. But it's basically uh, the hacker will send you an email pretending to be someone else, pretending to be maybe the email server provider or your bank or something like that. They'll send it from an account that looks similar. So they'll make little changes to the email. So that's one of the key things you can pick up when you're looking at phishing emails. If that's an email account that you've never seen before, or it looks like, you know, let's call it nab. And they write, you know, the nab email is, you know, at nab.com.au, for example. That's your bank. But if they write nab, and they write the B like a weird B, like a Russian B or something like that. That's, they've taken that email domain out and they're able to use that to fish you. So then they'll send you an email looking like NAB and it looks like NAB and you're like, oh, this is weird. I didn't, 
I didn't know I had to re-sign into my bank through the browser. I normally use the app. And when you look at the email, you can actually see the email address that it's coming from, or you can actually hover over a link that people are showing you. So you get your mouse and you, you hover over the link that they want you to click and sign into it. And then you look down at the bottom left-hand side of your screen. Most of the time you can actually see the link that they're trying to direct you to. And if it isn't clearly the bank's website, then that's a phishing. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to dupe you or trick you into clicking those links, signing in with your credentials, your real credentials into the systems. And then because of that, they can then harvest your credentials, actually get your password and username and then go into your bank pretending to be you and pull your money out. The second way people lose a lot of their credentials is the use of third party systems. So, you know, you sign your email and username uh, into Google and you're using Google. Google spends a lot, a lot of money, a lot of software engineering time making sure their systems are secure and that, you know, there's no ways for hackers to get in. But what they can't control is the third party websites. The Jack and Joe's fish shop down the road that has a website that wants you to sign in because they've just decided to do online ordering of coffees and fish and chips. Those people's websites are not secure. They don't have the money to defend them. They don't have the technical skills to put secure things in place. They're going to buy older systems that are unpatched in order to interact financially with their customers. And so hackers will go after those people and attack them and steal all their user clients' credentials. And that's what you see when you see all the big hacks go through the news. It's, it's the third-party sites that don't have as good a security as Google, for example, on the credentials that the, their users have. Now, what the hacker is doing is they're taking all those credentials because so many people use the same credential as they use in Google as they do on that third-party site. So the best way to defend against this is one, don't sign in with your normal email and password on people's third-party sites, regardless of what that is. Normally, um, sites provide a token where you can sign in through Google, use that all the time, never give your password out because you're giving that password to a third party and you're trusting that third party to protect it and they probably don't have the money to spend on it. To give you an example, you know, most fintech cybersecurity startups, they might only have 10, 20, 30 employees doing all the work. A bank has at least 300 people in Australia in each bank and I've talked to these guys and I know I've been inside their um, socks each bank, each of the big four banks has at least 300 employees working on the cybersecurity just of that bank alone. So in terms of scale... What's a SOC? You say you've been inside their SOCs. Uh, security Operations Center. So it's just a floor in the room where they host all their cyber, but it's where they manage all their data and do the security work and stuff like that. So that's a cyber term, yes. Cyber people call it a SOC Security Operations Center, it's, and it looks like a control controls of all the information, and then there's lots of breakout rooms and stuff. Dave, we've gone from, um, I guess, the title of, of this episode being business email compromise, and, and it seems like a lot of what you're talking about is, is obviously what the attacker wants. They want to access individuals' personal banks, their personal social media accounts, I would assume. Um, how have we got from, from a business having a responsible um, duty or, or a, an obligation to keep business email secure to an individual's personal banking so the probability that people use the same passwords on their emails and their banking accounts, I mean, I don't have the exact numbers. I don't think people have actually done a study on that, but it's high. And every case that I've dealt with where someone has lost money on their bank accounts, where they've had access to their bank, most of the time they've been using the same email or password. But the second thing is, it's so business email comp 
The difference is if you if you live down the down the street and you you run a solo business and you don't have that much money transacting through, the probability that um, a serious hacking unit is going to attack you is very low. But if you have a high turnover business and a lot of these businesses, you know, lawyers, you know, real estate agents, they're the people who are transacting and moving money between house sales and stuff like that. If they've got a high turnover of cash, then those people's email accounts are actually really important to protect because it's not just through accessing a bank account that you can attack, take money. And um, one of these ones is like, fraud, like invoice frauds, basically. So what they'll do is, if they can get access to your email accounts through the methods we've discussed, they might actually just sit in your email account and what they will, they'll, they'll do is they'll just go incognito. They won't touch anything. They won't do anything. They won't delete any of your emails. But what they're looking for is they're looking for emails. They're looking for the person that does all the transferring of the money. And then they're looking to attack that person's um, information cycle. So what do I mean by this? It means, you know, my name's Dave and I receive 10 invoices a day from suppliers because I'm the transacting procurement officer of my company. I receive those emails. I then pay those invoices and emails to all those suppliers daily through my banking system, through third-party systems. So what attackers are trying to do is they're trying to get between the supplier sending the email and invoice and what those banking information looks like and me entering the information for payments into the banking system, whatever the company is using, whether it be a banking portal or another third-party um, logistics or supply chain portal, ERP, et cetera, et cetera. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to, they will get inside the email and that they will change the email and change the invoice. So they'll, they'll download the invoice. They'll add their banking information that a bank they have, put it back into the email account, leave it as if you haven't seen it. You'll go in and go, oh yeah, sweet, I need to pay this guy. You'll take the invoice. You'll just enter the information because everyone, you expect suppliers to give you the right information for, the, for being paid. And then you'll pay that money, but unbeknownst to you, is you've put in the hacker's banking information, not your supplier's information. Got it. And so this is one of the major ways that serious money gets stolen. Um, and this is what major hacking groups around the world are actually targeting. They're targeting those quite large, high turnover businesses that don't have huge security teams um, that they're hoping that if they can get into a procurement officer's banking email and change the invoice numbers or get in between that, they can get in between the supply chain of sending an invoice to someone getting paid, they can circle that loop. And then a very quick way to defeat that is making sure the procurement officer rings the supplier and has a voice confirmation of the banking details. It's probably one of the biggest ways you can defeat that and having those processes for your company. But it's easy to let go. And I saw during Corona when it came through in March 2020, that was when a huge amount of business email compromise um, phishing and fraud scams happened all over the world. Some multi-million dollar ones in Australia, multi-million one ones in Europe that I um, dealt with, you know, as part of as part of being a cybersecurity professional, because people were not sitting next to each other in the office anymore, so they were unable to check. And so when an invoice gets handed through multiple employees, you know, it's very easy to to sit in between that, change the invoice numbers if you're a hacker, and you know, escape with a lot of money. Dave, you've mentioned um, the the global um, presence of, of this this criminal activity um, and these crime groups. 
what government's responsible? Is it, is it here in Australia, the Australian government? Um, you know, if we, for example, in the company um, that, that I work for or, or one of the companies um, that I've worked for in the past, is it up to the Australian government to to protect us and chase these bad guys once they've they've got what they want and, and help us, you know, get our money back? Or where, where do the um, the responsibilities lie? So, government government doesn't care if the hackers can access your email. In their opinion, it's your responsibility to defend it. Two-factor authentication is free. There's a few other methods you can do. It's your money. You need to make sure you have decent security controls in order to protect that. If lots and lots and lots of money gets stolen, you know, in the millions of dollars kind of mark for a single client, then obviously the police will get involved and take it up as a case. Now, the AFP run a business email compromise task force that's solely focused on this type of crime, and they're run out of the Australian Cyber Security Centre. And the police and everyone take it, take it quite seriously. They are, they are as a law enforcement, basically all law enforcement agencies all over the world are significantly disrupted by the fact that most of these attacks don't happen in the same jurisdiction as the victim. So back in the day, you know, if you've got a guy breaking into a shop, burning a shop down, stealing all the money out of the cash register, the probability that that guy lives within driving distance of that victim is most of the time guaranteed. Whereas business email compromise is happening over the internet. They can set up sweatshops in Southeast Asia, in Eastern Europe, and they can run it like a big factory and the jurisdiction of the victim is in Australia but the jurisdiction of the attacker is in a place where there are no or less uh, law enforcement agreements and treaties between governments and so if the if that what the hacking groups do is they they stage so they'll sit in a very unsafe place to us but a safe place legally to them They'll run all these sweatshops. They'll run the hacking from their perspective. They'll use internet proxies and obfuscation methods in order to route their internet traffic through multiple different law enforcement jurisdictions. And this slows law enforcement down a lot because they have to go through the legal process that they would normally do for any crime in liaising with the locals, getting access, getting a warrant, getting it under those laws to then just seize the evidence of that proxy or that um, specific internet aspect and they can do it normally really easily if it's in the same jurisdiction but because of these multiple the world is global now so crime has turned global so they have to do a significant amount of liaison work and relationship building and um, in order to basically take down these hacking or syndicates um, you also have to think about criminal organizations like a business as well and if you can think of it like a business they can you can understand that they're going to have different suppliers so so a lot of the hacking groups actually don't open bank accounts themselves so you know criminal number one business in his mind his enterprise is opening fraudulent bank accounts under false names and then selling those on the dark web criminal enterprise number two is doing the actual hacking because they've got more technical people they will buy anonymously access to those bank accounts so even if you trace the money and as it's transferred through those bank accounts globally, um, the bank accounts won't lead back to them because criminal criminal A, you know, has actually done the opening of that account. He doesn't know where the money's gone. He doesn't even have access to the bank account anymore. He'll sell those access, um, and he just he works on a scale. He opens thousands and thousands of accounts around the world, and um, he gets basically just a fee for that. 
So there's multiple criminal organisations all participating in this business email compromise industry and scam. A lot of them only talk to each other anonymously now. And the fact that they're all talking to each other anonymously, they own different parts of the supply chain to this attack and they all work internationally makes it hard for government and law enforcement to disrupt on a serious on a serious basis on it with a serious plan. Um, I think we definitely can defeat this um, this type of criminal activity, but the, f the first onus definitely is on the user because you're the only person who can implement two-factor authentication. The government can't force you to do it. The government can't get you to do it if you don't know how. You have to get on there and just understand the two to three clicks you need to do to get it moving. And then if you're a business owner, to make sure that you've implemented that because in the end, the government will say, yep, they'll write a, they'll, they'll do a crime report, they'll report it, and then, you know, like anything, you know, if someone smashes your car up, the government isn't going to pay for your car. If you've got insurance, the insurance company pay. If you don't have insurance, you know, it's like, well, sorry, um, you shouldn't have left it open. Dave, that's, um, it's really um, insightful to see, I guess, the scale of, of, of the issue. On, a, on an international basis, as you say, you know, the victim is, is often not in the same jurisdiction as, as the criminal. And, and I think it's, you know, even more um, enforcing to actually do something about it, right? Um, you've mentioned already a couple of times two-factor authentication. And um, I, I guess I'll just explain quickly for, for listeners that aren't clear what that is. When you enter a password, you occasionally will have a system that forces you to enter a code that might have been text to you or sent via an email. So there's a, there's a second layer of authentication to ensure that it is indeed you. Um, most people, and I will make this statement lightly, but most people in this world, if I look at you know people like my parents' generation that are still operating in, in the business world on, on a daily basis, my, my father is a financial controller for a small charity, for example, um, dealing with you know a lot of lot of this type of transaction, he's not computer savvy. So, how do we you know you mentioned before there's a couple of clicks to turn it on, but what's an easy way or where do people go? How do people apply this 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 extra layer of security, which which is no additional cost? So I mean, Internet 2.0 is doing a huge campaign because it's free to implement, but it takes a small amount of technical understanding to implement. It doesn't actually require any technical skills. It just need it means you can navigate the browser and action something. So I would say that if you have the skills to set up an email account with Gmail, you also have the skills to uh, implement two-factor authentication. And you probably right. just have to be aware and ready that you're gonna have to download an app, like an authenticator app, um, which is the best one in order to use this. All right, that sounds good. So we can, we can basically get the listeners to reach out for a step-by-step -step guide on how to do that, is what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've, we're cool. making videos and we've got key documents there to show people step by step. And everyone in Internet yeah. 2.0 knows how to implement this. So it takes five minutes and um, I'm always happy to go click this button, push that, and then yeah, you'll see your phone number and hit, hit yes. A couple of final questions. I'm conscious of time for yourself and the listeners. How do I know if my business email has already been compromised? I remember when I first started in the cybersecurity space, one of the, the statements that was made to me was there's only one thing worse than realizing that you were hacked, and that's realizing that you were hacked 200 days ago, which is about the average <laughs> time it takes for people to realize it's happened. So what do I do now? I mean, obviously, I could just be you know, on my phone right now. Someone's actually already got access to my systems. Like, what do I do? So Google and Microsoft have 
really simple resources that you can access on their back end to see who's accessed your accounts. You can see based on IP addresses and also accounts and devices. The easiest thing to do is get in touch with someone at Internet 2.0 and they will quickly walk you through the process in order to access those systems and you can check whether you're the only one with access to your account. And that sounds like it'll take minutes, not hours. No, five minutes. It's very easy. As long as you're next to your laptop. Okay. Final question um, before we wrap up and, and let you go. When you opened, I think in the first or the second question, you were talking about the, the scale of the issue and, and some of the, the frightening st statistics that, that Australian businesses are currently faced with. Uh, what's the worst that can happen here from um, a, you know, a, a single business owner who fails to put in place basic security around their, yep. their email? So for a business, uh, there's a really good example last year that was covered by a great journalist called Angus Grigg in the AFR. They uh, were a fund and they lost several million dollars. Uh, being the nature of what they are as a financial fund, they hold a lot of investors' money. That fund was immediately closed based off the fact that they lost money to a business email compromise scam because the, the investors and the staff and the, the board didn't have... Uh, they didn't have trust or confidence in that fund to operate and not lose more money. So that immediately closed and those business owners, they lost everything. Um, I've seen other business owners um, who have, you know, had a serious problem with a lot of investors or suppliers or um, the bank, for example, because of that security, that lack of security because they're holding a lot of money. I've dealt with uh, some businesses who are trying to follow up on behalf of customers and there's been like senior pensioners that have lost life savings through the, just through the nature they've given their entire banking account access across to um, criminals. So the worst thing that can happen is you can, you, you can lose a lot of money and depending on where you're at in terms of business, does that have impact confidence in uh, both your suppliers, customers, but also your investors? Okay, thanks Dave. So for all the listeners um, that have subscribed to the channel, uh, we will be circulating through the documentation that, that was mentioned in today's podcast. I just want to take this opportunity to say a big thank you to you, Dave, for, for your time and, and your comprehensive responses. And leave it there for today, and thanks again. Awesome. Well, Chris, welcome to the Business Email Compromise Evangelizing Network. Uh, it's your job to now tell three people today to make sure they've got two-factor authentication, and hopefully together we can all defend ourselves. Sounds like a good plan. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> See you later. We appreciate your time and know you'll be able to improve your security using the information from today. And remember, when you need the best security for your business, speak with us and get the solutions that only Internet 2.0 can provide.